Neoclassical economics and its protagonists, the Homo economicus, have dominated the economic paradigm since the 1980s. Homo economicus acts rationally as an individual, free from the constraints of the family unit. His tastes are exogenous and unchanging. You may ask why I say his. Why not hers or theirs? I refer to Homo economicus tastes as his because he is a construct that corresponds to the dominant masculine stereotype one that is rational, selfish, and able to make decisions with the agency. When maximizing profit, the sky is the limit. Feminist economics can be traced back to the 1970s with Esther Borsrup's woman's role in economic development. However, it began to take off in the late 80s in response to the neoclassical paradigm. Feminist economics is critical of the neoclassical school, emphasizing the role of cooperation in the economy over individual decision-making pointing to the fact that agency is not available to everyone and that the free market has systematically excluded labor performed in the private sphere. To fill these gaps in theory, feminist economics focus on issues such as care work, intimate partner violence, gender wage gaps, and other barriers women face. If neoclassical economics is simply the study of capitalism, what does the fact that these issues have been left out of the models tell us? Does it imply that capitalism has left women out? Has it disenfranchised them? Various indicators seem to support this, the gender wage gap, devaluation of care work, and glass ceilings. But how can we be sure? After almost two centuries of capitalism, it has become difficult for us to imagine any other way. The current workings of the system are all we have known, taken for granted as natural. How could we imagine anything else? To better understand gender relations in the post-industrial age, some scholars have turned towards using state socialism as an alternative means of examining gender relations and women's place in the economy. Today, we are joined by one of such scholars. Christian Godsey is a professor of Russian Eastern European Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. She's the author of multiple books, but the one we will be discussing today is called Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism. In this book, she compares family relations, care work, women's experience in the workforce, politics, and sexual relationships under state socialism to that in the West. She concludes that, in general, state support for childcare and other domestic work lessens the double burden for women, and that economic independence leads to more egalitarian and fulfilling romantic and sexual relationships. Before we get started, I want to make a quick disclaimer. Firstly, I want to differentiate between two key concepts, state socialism and communism. State socialism is defined as a political system in which the state has control of industries and services. Communism, on the other hand, is a political theory created by Karl Marx which advocates for class war leading to a society in which all property is publicly owned and each person works and is paid according to their abilities and needs. Studying socialism is not the equivalent of advocating for a return to state socialism nor communism. Scholars argue that it's worth examining the differences and similarities to understand the system that we live by better. Some things are simply more evident in juxtaposition. With all that being said, I think we can turn now to my discussion with Christian Godsey, where we talk a little bit about why um, gender relations were so different um, in socialist societies, what this has to do with capitalism and economics, and what we can expect to see going forward. My name is Sophia, and you're listening to Expanding Economics. Hi, Professor Godzi. Thank you so much for joining us here on Expanding Economics. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you very much for having me. I really want to start off with what is it that sparked your interest in this field and why um, 
why exactly did you choose to study Eastern Europe and post-socialist Bulgaria specifically? Because I know that was your PhD thesis. Yeah. So, I mean, there's like the long answer and there's the short answer. And the long answer has to do with my kind of high school experiences doing Model United Nations in the 80s in San Diego, where I grew up. Um, And my very first, I think, Eastern Bloc country on the Security Council was Bulgaria. Um, And I always wanted to be the Soviet Union, but I I got Bulgaria. Eventually, I did get the Soviet Union, but I was very interested in the Eastern Bloc, um, even in the 80s, when it was still behind the quote-unquote Iron Curtain. And then I happened to be in Europe in the summer, actually. Well, I was in Europe when the wall fell. (laughs) Quite shocked to me because I had dropped out of college because I thought that the world was going to end in like a nuclear holocaust. And so I dropped out of college to like see the world before it got blown up. And then the world, the, <laughs> the wall fell and I was like, oops. Um, but anyway, that summer I, I was in Bulgaria in, um, I went through Bulgaria, June of 1990. It was the only country that actually wouldn't give me a visa other than a transit visa. Um, and so I was in Istanbul and I took a train through Plovdiv and on my way to Belgrade. I spent some time in Yugoslavia. And then that summer of 1990, I basically made my way up from Yugoslavia into Romania, into Hungary, into Czechoslo- what was still Czechoslovakia at that time, and then into what was still Eastern Germany at that time as well. So I always knew that I wanted to study Eastern Europe and because I had learned a lot about it in the 80s when, you know, there was no internet, you actually had to kind of go to the library and learn all this stuff. Um, So, you know, so then I went to grad school in the 90s and obviously there were opportunities to study in Eastern Europe. And when I was looking out across the region, I thought, well, where was the country that they didn't let me in? And it was Bulgaria. I mean, I only was able to go through because I had a transit visa. But... The other, the short answer is that my ex-husband is Bulgarian and my daughter is half Bulgarian. So I have Bulgarian family. I have a Bulgarian mother-in-law. I have Bulgarian, um, you know, um, ex-brothers and sisters-in-laws and all that good stuff. So I have, because I was married and because I lived there and for a brief period of time actually considered like permanently moving to Bulgaria, it made sense in some ways because I had felt like I had a lot of connections to the country, but then, you know, these things happened. The marriage fell apart. Uh, My daughter is still kind of half sort of here. I mean, she's mostly here. She goes to Bulgaria in the summers, but obviously I still have connections. I'm still in really good. um, I have good relationships with my ex-husband and his family. And so I see them every time I'm back in Sofia and yeah. So it was it was a mixture of academic interest and personal circumstances, as many things in the world are. Yeah, I would agree. And I think like a point you um, talk about in your book, which um, I want to go to after this, but is that all the countries really do differ in their biographies of their experiences and their post attitudes. And I think um, I think this could be a biased perspective on mine, but I really do think the Bulgarian situation is a unique case in terms of perspectives of the regime post, um, 
post the fall because i mean bulgaria was very loyal to russia so. exactly i mean bulgaria is one of the few countries that democratically re-elected their socialists back into power after 1989 right so and and a lot of people in the west make the mistake of homogenizing all of these countries that are in the eastern bloc in fact one of the biggest mistakes that i see is people will use the term post-soviet to refer to like Poland and Romania and Bulgaria, which is just, or even Yugoslavia, which is really outrageous. But these countries were never part of the Soviet Union. They were satellite countries in the sense that they often supported the Soviet Union in places like the United Nations and the International Labor Organization. But they had very distinct individual foreign policy, and they had very distinct different brands of socialism. You had self-managing socialism in Yugoslavia. You had what they called goulash communism in Hungary. You know, you had very different sorts of socialism. And, and I think one of the most important things for people to understand is that you cannot homogenize the region. Bulgaria is really unique in the same way that Romania was unique and the Eastern Germany was unique. And you know, Poland had a whole different kind of historical set of circumstances that set it apart from other countries in this part of the world. So um, in regards to your book, I was curious to understand um, why you chose to write it in the format that you did. Um, so you wrote you wrote it in a, a very accessible format, I think, for people who don't come from like an advanced academic background. It's um, very much targeted towards a more popular audience. And um, uh, yeah, so what inspired this, the topic of this book and uh, the audience that you wanted to write towards? Yeah, so you are attributing way too much agency <laughs> to me um, in this particular circumstance. So, you know, the book that I wrote, because I have a lot of academic books, and this book was a bit of, is, is a bit of an aberration. So what basically happened is the book that I wrote before this was called Red Hangover, and I happened to be living in Europe in 2014, which was the 25th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall. I was living in Germany, but I was also traveling a lot to Bulgaria that year. And all over, actually, Eastern Europe, because I was living in Germany, I kept getting invited to give talks. And I was really curious about, you know, what had happened in the last 25 years of transition. Anyway, long story short, in 2017, I was going to publish a book called Red Hangover, Legacies of 20th Century Communism with Duke University Press. And one of the chapters in that book was about this experience that I had of talking about the sexual politics of Eastern West Germany to a group of West German, mostly men. And the New York Times in 2017 was running a series of articles for something that they called the Red Century. And the Red Century was looking back on the 100th anniversary of the Bolshevik Revolution in the Soviet Union. And so they asked me to write this piece of um, about women's rights. And so, you know, really, honestly, unthinkingly, most of the stuff that I wrote in the piece I thought was perfectly obvious to everybody in the world because I've been studying this stuff for 25 years. And um, boy, did a Twitter catastrophe ensue. Um, it was pretty awful, actually. There, I mean, it was great in a way. It, the the op-ed went everywhere. It was viral. and But it was also when those things happened, like the troll armies descended upon me. Anyway, so long story short, 
I got a call in September. That uh, op-ed came out, I think, on August 17th, 2017. It was right the same weekend as the Charlottesville um, March. Um, and then I think it was in late September. I got a call from a New York publisher that said, hey, we liked your op-ed in the New York Times. You want to write a book about it? <laughs> and I said, whoa, really? <laughs> um, and I hemmed and hawed about it. But one of the things that I... One of the things that happened in the wake of that op-ed is that some of my academic colleagues, and particularly some of my, um, I wouldn't call them, well, they're colleagues, but not necessarily friendly colleagues, um, criticized me for not substantiating all of my arguments in a 1,200-word op-ed. Um, and of course, what could I possibly do in, you know, this was, this is not like, Oxford University Press. This is the New York Times. But I I did, you know, one of the things that a lot of people tried to do is to say that I was misrepresenting the research or I wasn't accurately reflecting the empirical evidence that's available. And that really annoyed me because there's a ton of empirical evidence and there are a ton of East European scholars that are doing research in this area. So when I agreed to write the book, which I did eventually, it took me about a month and a half to decide to do it. But when I finally decided to do it, one of the conditions of me doing it was that I, I would include about 20 pages, as you know, of endnotes in the book with all of the sources that I um, that I draw upon. So, so the reason, so I wrote it in a very accessible way because I wanted students, I wanted general audiences to be able to access this information. I think in the United States, we have a lot of negative stereotypes about 20th century state socialism in Eastern Europe. Some of those are well-founded, but others are not. Um, and particularly when it comes to things like women's rights or gay rights or, you know, cultural production or education or science or sports, there are all sorts of things that we can think of that were actually accomplishments of these regimes. And we need to have a language to talk about that in the 21st century, because the baggage of the 20th century is really kind of limiting our political imagination around these economic structures for the 21st century. So that was my that was my hope with the book. And I have to say, I was, I've was i been very surprised. The book's been translated into 14 languages. I believe five or six of them are languages of countries in the former Eastern Bloc. So it's been a, it's been a really wonderful experience to be able to reach audiences in a way that my little academic books never do. Yeah. And really, like, I always think clear writing is good writing. I felt your book was very much like, just like, so like cohesive and, um, easy to grapple with, especially as a, as a student. So that's, it was very good in that way. Um, so getting more into what you, you actually cover in the book, which is what did uh, gender equality or gender relations look like under an alternative to capitalism? Um, how, what did the life look like for women? Um, this makes me think a lot about, because I'm taking a course now, it's sociology of the family, and we talk a lot about life course theory. In North America, I, I, I'm situated in Canada, I'm in university in my undergrad, I feel like the normative life course for someone like me is uh, go to school, pursue post-secondary, graduate, work a little bit, get married, have two and a half kids, and do this all around the age of 27 or 28, and then keep working and then retire. So this is kind of the framework that uh, at least I've encountered. I understand for many people, there's different class, racial factor. Perhaps women like me in um, a socialist country, 
behind the iron curtain what was the normative life course now that is a great question um and this is going to surprise you i think because one of the things that i think is really interesting about the socialist countries is that they so, so the one thing that i do want to say and we can talk a little bit about this later is that at no point was patriarchy really the target of you know, um, women's emancipation in Eastern Europe. It was always really about capitalism. Patriarchal ideas and sort of gender essentialisms around appropriate masculinity and appropriate femininity persisted. And from a Western feminist point of view, that's always been a problem. But one of the things that a typical life course would look like in Eastern Europe, right, is that first of all, and we have to back this up because it's not just that you go to school, right? Because in the West, some kids are raised at home by stay-at-home moms, and some kids are go to kindergartens or go to daycare. Well, in most East European countries, all kids went to daycare. And so their mothers continued to work throughout their childhood. Um, there really wasn't a concept of a quote-unquote stay-at-home mom. And, and that really changes a lot for the way that young girls are being brought up into the world. They are seeing that their mothers are working. Oftentimes their mothers may have higher salaries than their fathers. And um, it, there's very much a, a sense of women's importance, not only as mothers, but also as workers. Now that doesn't mean that women didn't have also responsibility for the home. They were still moms. They still had to like look after sick kids and deal with housework and things like that. But to the extent that there were programs in place which outsourced a lot of childcare during the school year, there were after school programs for kids so that they could get their homework done, for instance, at school rather than have their parents make them do it at home. The other thing in a lot of socialist countries is that you had summer camps for kids. So in the summer months, either the kids went off to live with their grandparents um, in the villages or they went off to some kind of summer camp which kept them busy. So the kind of culture of socialization is a much broader culture of lateral relationships that are outside of the core family unit in socialism. So what that means is that if you go, you graduate, like, you know, in, in a lot of these countries, you take an exam, you decide whether you're going to go to like a gymnasium, like an academic high school or a technicum, like a more technical kind of high school. And um, and then for those who go on to university, right, you start. And, oh, for, uh, the other thing is, is that obviously for for men, there's usually one or two years of military service that's required. But the thing that's different is that if you're a young woman and you go to university, most many women had their first children in university and it was encouraged to do that because if you were a first or second year university student, you could have a baby and there would be a kindergarten on campus or a nursery on campus that would look after a baby while you went to classes. Some universities had like night um, babysitters so that you could go to parties and leave your baby with a night nurse um, because you were young. It was understood that like going to parties is part of what you're supposed to be doing, and but somebody is going to take care of your baby. And the idea was that by the time you graduated from university, and in, in Eastern Europe, university was more than four years, it was sometimes five or six years, it meant that your child would be old enough, almost old enough to go straight into school, right? So basically, you had your, your little kids while you were at university, you got out of university, usually you had a two or three year internship that was organized for you by the government. And your kids started um, college, your kids started, sorry, not college, but your kids started school. 
And then you kind of like grew up and unlike in the West where retirement ages are now 67, they used to be 65, retirement ages in Eastern Europe were much younger. And, um, and so basically you had your kids young when you were, you know, 40, your own kids were basically just getting ready to start their lives. And, um, and by the time you're 50, you have grandkids, right? It's a completely different life cycle, a life course. Um, and it is very pronatalist in the sense that people were very much encouraged to have children because they got child allowances. You got special access to apartments. If you had children, if you had a honeymoon loan, for every child that you had, you had a percentage of your loan that was forgiven by the government. But basically what these countries tried to do was to allow women to really efficiently combine their work lives with their family lives. And that is very, very different from the Western way of women go to school, they work. And then the minute they, you said, get married around 26 or 27 or 28, and then if they have a kid by 30, it becomes almost impossible to maintain yourself in the workforce. So you become a stay-at-home mom for a certain class of women. Um, even though those women don't want to become stay-at-home moms, they're sometimes forced out of the labor force because the care, the cost of childcare, especially in the United States, is so prohibitive that it makes sense for one parent to stay at home. And since the gendered expectation is that it's moms who stay at home. It's usually women who have to pull out of the labor force. So it's a very, very different model. Now, I'm not saying that it's perfect. In Eastern Europe, there were still expectations around childcare and housework that were very, very much gendered. But if you actually look at the percentage of women in very, very high positions of um, uh, education and professional training, right? People who became, you know, PhDs in astrophysics or people who were engineers, many of them were women. And the reason they were women was because it was absolutely normalized that women in these fields would have children and that the state would actually help those help women and men, families raise those children to adulthood. It would not fall exclusively on the nuclear family the way that it does in North America. You kind of did touch on this briefly in your book, but it's something that I still haven't um, entirely been able to wrap my mind around. You mentioned that, so women, it was like very normal for their, to have children and still remain in the labor force. And this transition was very efficient. As you say, like you leave school and your kid's already in school, like talk about economic efficiency, like that is like seamless. But we still, if you look at a picture of political leaders in that time, they're still all men. So how come women were able to permeate like the academic spheres and perhaps some professions, but never politics? Right. So I get asked that question a lot. And um, first of all, I'd like to point out that there was, uh, there have been female Politburo members. There were prominent women in prominent positions of power. Um, in Bulgaria, Tolta was a member of the Politburo for quite a long time. In Romania, had people like Anna Pauker, who's the world's first minister of foreign affairs. Obviously, in the Soviet Union, you had Alexandra Kalantai. So there were women in positions of power. But generally speaking, not so much. The reason, I think, is because this conception of having equal representation of men and women at the highest levels of power is a very Western feminist thing. Because... Western feminists want equality and they want equality in really weird ways, right? So if, if I said to you, okay, um, men, there's a, there's a wage gap between men and women, right? Men, let's say make 
women make 70 cents on a man's dollar. So uh, a socialist feminist will say that's a problem because there are, there's, you know, this extract um, surplus value extraction that's happening and it's happening differentially because women are responsible for these other things and there's statistical discrimination in the labor force. And so what we need to do is to try to compensate for the fact that women are paying an, a price for being caregivers in the economy. But a Western feminist will say, well, why don't we just reduce men's wages to 70 cents on the dollar, and then we have an equality. Because what's more important is the equality and not where the equality takes place, right? And so I think the thing is, is when you think about political leadership, a lot of women in Eastern Europe, and there were polls that were done about this, they wanted nothing to do with politics. Politics was dirty. Politics was mostly stupid, right, in Eastern Europe, because let's face it, it was a pretty undemocratic regime, right? So even if you were in politics, you faced a uphill battle to get anything done when you basically had one man usually in charge at the very top of the political establishment. So even if you were like, a minister or, you know, a prime minister or a commissar or some, you know, power, position of power, you still had to respond and 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 basically work with this one dude who was kind of a pain in the butt, right? Um, and he had absolute authority. So I think that the thing is just like, what are we actually talking about when we're talking about women's progress? And, and I think that this is a really important um, factor in, because at no point, right, in most of these countries, they were talking very much about supporting women so they could combine their productive and reproductive roles. But the idea was that it's not that, like, we have this weird idea in the West that if you put women in power, that they'll necessarily care about the working class. And we can see very clearly that we have a lot of right-wing women all over the world who are totally reactionary. And even though I, I am definitely a feminist, right? When I look at Marine Le Pen, I'm not gonna vote for her because she happens to be a woman. She's a right-wing reactionary, I am sorry, right? So the politics question, I think is a really important question. This replicates itself in the contemporary era in, um, Western Europe, where the EU is trying to have equal numbers of men and women on corporate boards. So as a socialist feminist, the problem is the corporation. The problem is the way that the corporation is, is, is distorting the economy because of its monopolistic and predatory policies on consumers. It's not because there aren't enough women on the board. That's like saying, you know, the Nazis weren't gender egalitarian. They would be so much better if there were an equal number of Nazi generals that were women. I mean, of course not, right? I, I mean, I don't know. Sometimes I think that that's a, it's, um, it's, it's something that Western feminists in the 70s in particular used to criticize East European women because Western women were so upset about the fact that they had all these like legal equalities in Eastern Europe, right? Um, and all of these social policies like childcare, like uh, parent, really generous parental leave policies so that a woman who got pregnant got between one um, and two years of paid leave and then a third year that was unpaid, but with a job guarantee meaning that a woman could take three years out of the labor force to look after her child if she so chose and go back to her job. That's unheard of in the West. 
And so the way to kind of criticize what was going on in Eastern Europe was to say, oh, well, but there's no women in positions of power, which again, I think if you look at the local level, um, at the municipal level and at the oblast level, there were a lot of women in power in these countries. It's just at the very, very, very highest echelons of authority that they were not in power. And partially that had to do with the fact that a lot of women didn't want to be in power. And that's the same, that's true in the West as well, right? I mean, look what happened to Hillary Clinton. Look what happens to any woman who runs for political office. It's more about what she's wearing right? Than about what her policy ideas are. So you could totally understand why women are um, a little bit turned off by what is very much a kind of nasty political um, arena. But at the same time, uh, one other thing that I will say is, um, interestingly, to just turn that on its head, Eastern European countries allowed women into the military in much greater numbers and in much higher um, positions with combat roles long before Western European and Amer North American countries did so. So uh, Anna Krilovo, my colleague at um, Duke University, has a wonderful book and a couple of articles about the idea that the idea, the femininity, femininity in Eastern Europe was a very different sort of thing than the kind of idea, the gender binary that we have in the West. Women could be soldiers. I mean, even today, there are a lot of women fighting on the front line of Ukraine in the Ukrainian army. Um, but Zelensky is still a man, right? <laughs> There's no woman who's in charge of the army. But again, what really matters here? Are women being treated as um, fully competent people who make the choice to go to the front lines and fight? Yes, they are. And that comes from a long history of treating women as equal in Eastern Europe. Again, we, we have to think about what does it actually mean to say whether women are in high positions of authority or not? Um, and what are we what are we actually hoping to achieve by that? With you know, do we want women to be really good capitalists so that they have more seats on corporate boards? Um, or is it that we actually want to have a society that is more just, equitable, and sustainable in the long run, and that actually provides for families and working people? And I think that the latter is a much more important goal. What I'm hearing is that, like, even if you have representation in, in power, if the ideology of that power is not in the right place, it doesn't really, um, it doesn't really it's not going to be effective. It's a problem of capitalism, right? So if you think about capitalism as being a very steep pyramid and the very tippity top is 1%, right? The very, very top is the 1% and they own whatever it is, 40% of all of the wealth in the United States, right? Is justice served by making sure that the 1% is diverse, right? That, that like we have a nice representation of all genders and sexualities and, and colors and races at the 1%. Now, for many people, right, that's, that's what we are being told that social justice is about, is that like Beyonce and Jay-Z can do ads for Tiffany's, right? And they're representing Black Americans in a way that shows that the 1% can be really diverse, but that it completely ignores the 99% of the pyramid, right? That is actually being exploited, that is actually being harmed by the existence of the 1%. So 
from my perspective, there just shouldn't be a 1%. I don't care how diverse the 1% is, right? And so it's it's not necessarily about um, that people agree ideologically. It's that the structure of an economic system, right, is going to create certain kinds of artifacts like extreme inequality and that it is a diversion for people to say that the goal of a social justice movement is to make sure that the 1% is diverse. The amount of wealth concentrated in that 1% needs to be spread out more equitably into society. And yes, it should be spread out more equitably to historically disadvantaged groups. That's absolutely true. But it's um, but it's a trick that capitalism plays on us to 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 tell us that, I mean, when we say there should be more women in the C-suite, when we say that there should be more women on corporate boards, what we're saying is literally there should be more women in the one percent. There should be a better distribution of the obnoxious concentration of wealth in that one percent of people between genders. And that's a very, and that is a very liberal feminist goal. And I just think that that's a mistake. That's why liberal feminism has kind of lost a lot of credibility, right? White feminism has lost a lot of credibility because it's become only about hashtag girl boss slaying the boardroom feminism and not about actually caring about the vast majority of women who are living paycheck to paycheck and struggling to get food on the table for their children. Yeah, that's a very interesting perspective. Um, definitely, like, uh, makes me, like, kind of rethink a bit of, like, I guess it's very, like, this discourse is very prominent in um, popular culture. And when you really start to, like, dig deep as to like, what this discourse is really advocating for, you can see how it risks just being a reproduction of, of certain uh, power structures. Um, that kind of brings me to, so I really want to get more into this idea of because economics is very much, neoclassical economics is very much the study of capitalism, in my view. It studies human behavior in a capitalist society. So I want to think about a little bit, so if we're thinking about capitalism, we're comparing it to um, alternative forms. Is the family structure, the normative pathway of division of labor, women jumping in and out of the private and public sphere, having to choose this either-or model, is this to serve capitalism does this like have this indirect effect of making for a more efficient capitalism or is that uh like a little too parsonian of an argument i mean so i think that and i'm gonna hear you know i'm drawing on the work of people like sylvia federici right and and nancy fraser people who have written about the ways in which capitalism extracts surplus value from reproductive labor because any capitalist economy needs workers, it needs consumers, and it needs taxpayers. Like capitalism doesn't exist without a constant infusion of new people from whom surplus value can be extracted. So in that case, you have to create this commodity. And you know, you study economics, you know that L labor is a commodity, right? It's traded on a market with prices that are determined by supply and demand. So, so the production of labor, right, is important to capital. And it turns out that the traditional family structure that we have in the United States 
that has been reinforced in the last 70 years during the Cold War, this very nuclear family of a man and a woman in a heterosexual family, obviously, which is the quote unquote ideal, uh, by parental care of their own biological children in a single family home with their own private property, all of that benefits capital. And it benefits capital because the cost of reproducing the next generation of workers, consumers, and taxpayers is borne by the individual family unit and mostly by women's unpaid labor. And in this case, when women stop having babies, and we just saw there's a really wonderful article in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago about women in South Korea South Korea now has the lowest total fertility rate ever recorded, 0.9% TFR, which means that South Korea is just going to disappear yeah, at a certain point because women are like, no marriage, no sex, no relationships, no babies. They have this movement called like the four no's or whatever. And um, they're on birth strike. And a lot of young people are on birth strike. And what happens when people go on birth strike? Capitalists panic. Because... Who's going to make the babies? How are they going to get the babies that they need to run the economy? If the labor force shrinks, wages go up. If the labor force shrinks, right, GDP goes down because you have fewer consumers. So the thing is that because of the way we organize our family life, we, you know, as in I'm a mom, so I can speak to this directly. I think of, I thought very much of having a child as a personal decision. I made the choice to have the child. And so all of the burdens of childcare and all of the exhausting labor of nappy changing and waking up in the middle of the night to feed the baby and figuring out where they're going to go to school and making sure that they're fed and clothed and healthy and that their wisdom teeth come out when they need to come out and all the other things that need to happen in order to raise a child to adulthood, it falls on me. It falls on me. Whereas in a socialist society or even a social democratic society in Western Europe or even Canada is a hell of a lot better at this than we are in the United States, right? The state steps up because the state recognizes that social reproduction is of value to everybody. The economist uh, Nancy Fulbright actually argues that children should be considered a public good. And if they're a public good, they should be funded by the state, just like our highways and national defense. But in the United States, it's very much a personal decision. So what's happening? People aren't having babies. Because if it's a personal decision, then it's also a personal decision to say, nope, N-O-P-E, no way. I'm not doing this. I'm not providing this labor for free. I'm going to live my life. And I'm just, you know, I mean, for climate reasons, there are all sorts of reasons why I think young people are refusing to um, reproduce this traditional family role. But it's definitely the case that capital capitalists owe women a huge amount of money for the labor that they have done in reproducing the labor force. And and, and, and there's so much wonderful work that has been done in feminist economics. If you go back to people like Marilyn Waring, right, who really talked about Keynes's original essay of looking at the United Nations system of national accounts where they, they tried to determine 
Um, it was an essay by Keynes during the, during the Second World War called How to Pay for the War, where he basically just wrote women's labor out of the equation. Nothing that is done in the home that's outside of the market is going to count towards anything. And unfortunately, this UN system of national accounting is exactly what we still have. And women's labor has just been completely, I mean, or caregiver's labor, because obviously it's not just women who are doing it now. There are lots of people of different genders who do this kind of work. So but I think it's really important to understand that that the field of economics is really kind of fundamentally based on a, a sexist assumption about the value of women's labor, right? So, um, um, you know, there's this old adage, like, if I pay a woman to clean my house, um, it contributes to GDP. Um, but if I marry her, then that labor disappears. It's just a weird function of accounting because when we do this kind of work, it just, it's a big zero. Um, and, it, and, and I don't think that the answer, let me just say that I don't think that the answer to this is like wages for housework. I don't think anybody should be paying individual women, right? Again, a very liberal white feminist solution to this is to just raise women's wages so that they can pay other women, usually women of color, to come to their house and clean and look after their kids. I am absolutely 100% in favor of socialization, right? Which is exactly what they did in Eastern Europe, which is exactly what they do in countries like Sweden, where you have the government, and, and by the way, in places like Quebec, right? Which has a really, really incredibly generous childcare policy. Um, and I can't remember, it's like 20 Ten dollars a um, day. Canadian dollars. Yeah, it's yeah. so cheap, right? To have your kids in childcare. That's socialization. And that's a social benefit that actually benefits everyone in society. Not, And it, it, it's not an individual choice. It's not about me slaying the boardroom so that I can hire, you know, an army of women of color or whatever to, to come and, and do the labor that I now don't have time to do because I'm so busy being important or whatever. Yeah. And I think something really interesting you touched on there is like, especially in the United States, it's this idea that you're to have a kid is your individual choice. And you do this cost benefit analysis when you make that choice, where it's like, oh, the kid, I'm going to get this much love, but I'm going to have to pay this much for braces. Right. But that's such like, uh, like, that's something that it gets reflected then in neoclassical economics that like, oh, everyone's just making their choice all the time without any regard for like the fact that there's that that choice isn't necessarily like happening in isolation. I mean, and and by the neoclassical economic model, right, I think that no woman in her sound mind would ever have a child because we'd be all out there maximizing our utils, right? Or whatever it is that we're supposed to be maximizing, right? If you do the cost benefit analysis of having a child, seriously, unless you live on a farm where you can actually use the labor of children, which is what people used to have children for, right? Um, you know, children are kind of a net like financial sinkhole, right? Um, they cost a lot of money. Um, and, and be, especially again, in the United States where there's no support. Um, I think that the, uh, the USDA, the USDA had some kind of calculation in a child born in 2016 would cost a, you know, ordinary family, something like $230,000 to raise to adulthood. And that's not including any cost of higher education. And it's not including the opportunity cost of the parent's time. Um, that's an incredible amount of money um, for most American families. And um, and then another interesting thing, so that's the USDA 
um, uh, calculation. But then if you happen to be in the military in the United States and you die in the line of service, uh, assuming that you're unmarried, the Department of Defense in this country will pay your parents something called a death gratuity. It's a very unpleasant term. It's a death gratuity. It's a one-time payment that the government gives your parents if you, as a child, die in the line of duty. Um, and you know how much that death gratuity is? Actually, a hundred. it's $100,000, right? But it's it's less than half the cost, right, of raising a child. So, so that shows you that just if you use those two calculations, these are both federal calculations of how much it costs to raise a child, not including the opportunity costs of the mother and not including any higher education costs, and what the government will pay you if your child dies in the line of duty defending the United States, the government is literally extracting more than $100,000 in surplus value from your child, from, from the death of your child, right? So, so the government knows Right? They've actually done the calculations. They know how much a child is worth. Um, and yet, at the same time, because it, it serves the interest of capital, they want very much you to decide that if you're going to have a child, it's not for any financial reason. It's like money doesn't matter. I want to have a child. I want to have the experience of being a mother. I want to bring you know, love and joy and continuity into my family and life and all those other things. You know, so 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 even though we as parents don't want to put like a value on our children, you know, obviously um, insurance industries, when they do actuarial tables and the government, right, when they're calculating certain kinds of benefits, they're quantifying these things all the time, right? Human life under capitalism, unfortunately, is reducible to a dollar sign. And I think the most important thing for us to do is to resist the, com the commodification of human life. We should not commodify human life, right? Um, in, in, in most countries, for instance, this is interesting, if you die in an accident, uh, the insurance company can pay your, again, your next of kin or your, um, you know, your wife or your kids and what's called an indemnity payment, which is like, so if, if you're, you know, like if, if you're, so you're if the father of two young children and you're a lawyer or whatever, and you get hit by a car, the insurance company will calculate how old you were, your kids, what your job was, and how much like indemnity they should pay your family for your wrongful death. You know, the, one of the, um, Germany does not allow any indemnity payments. As a matter of public policy, the Germans, and I think it's very interesting that it's the Germans, refuse to put a value on human life. Um, but we do it all the time. We do it all the time. And it's grim. And it's, and it, but it, it, again, once you really think about it, you understand how neoclassical economics, how the sort of neoliberal world in which we live in, reduces everything to a market value, to what Marx would have called exchange value. We don't really care. Only when it's convenient for them, though. Well, yes, only when it's convenient. Right. All right. So my last question for you um, in our last few minutes is, um, we were a little bit grim, so I want to swing the pendulum maybe to uh, something more 
optimistic hopefully the answer is optimistic I don't know um, but I, I'm really curious like where are we today relative to let's say 1980s like post second wave feminism early 2000s where are we today culturally economically in terms of women's equality in North America and what is this like where do we go from where we are yeah. So, I mean, it's a, this is a kind of like glass half full, glass half empty kind of thing, right? We, from where we hoped to be, we're not nearly as far along as we thought. Um, but from where we started, it's it's not as bad, right? Um, and, you know, my book, Second World, Second Sex, really talks a lot about how so much progress that was made in women's rights in the 20th century was a result of superpower grandstanding around women's issues at places like the United Nations. Um it turns out that the Bulgarian Committee for Women, the Bulgarian Women's Committee, was extremely influential at the UN and placed, you know, countries like the Soviet Union and Poland and Yugoslavia, even places in the global south like uh, Cuba or Vietnam, right? They talked a lot about women's issues and it sort of put a lot of pressure on Western governments to do things for their own women, lest those women start pointing to the Soviet Union saying, wait, how is it possible that women get that in like a non-democratic country and we 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 don't get it? Um, I think since the fall of the wall, since 89 and 90, there's been a regression in women's rights. I mean, Dobbs' decision in the United States is probably one of the best examples of that. But I do think, and here's my optimism, because I am a very optimistic person. I also, I believe that history is, the history of the present is contingent and malleable. And I think that what matters is that people don't lose hope, that people believe that they can change the system. Neoliberalism, neoclassical economics, capitalism as systems seem so completely overwhelming. But when you think about it for like five seconds, like fiat currency, right? Like we all believe that this is worth $20 in the United States, right? But if I go to Canada, I can't actually use this because it turns out that this is just a piece of paper, right? So, you know, if you're an economist and you know anything about fiat currency, you know, we all collectively walk around believing in the myth that this piece of paper has value. And we know, if you've ever lived in a country with hyperinflation, that this could literally be worth nothing tomorrow, right? Because it's just a piece of paper. Similarly, we believe that the nuclear family, we believe that gender inequality, we believe that racial inequality, that these are things that are just sort of like systems that are so difficult to change that have existed forever. But those very concepts are just like fiat money. The only reason they exist is because we collectively choose to believe in them. And if we collectively choose not to believe in them, if we collectively choose to liberate ourselves from these systems, if we collectively choose to make a different set of choices, to run our lives, to think about other people in non-monetary terms, we can change that system. Because as anybody who's lived in a country with hyperinflation knows, all you have to do is, you know, create a panic and people stop believing in paper money. They try to get all their money into gold or whatever assets they can. And then the currency just crashes, right? It's all about human psychology. And I do think that women's rights, women's rights are one of those things that have a lot to do with whether or not women believe they can do it. Now, I, I know that sounds all weird and stupid and positive psychology. And I don't mean to say it in, a, in that way of like, you know, just think you can and you will. But I think that this is a collective thing, right? That we can overcome the problems of 
patriarchal capitalism and the climate crises and extreme inequality, that we have the means in our grasp. The problem is, is that we have sort of mental shackles on our brains because we've, we've been told over and over again that either things cannot change or that if things do change, they will change for the worse. And I think that that is so dangerous. We need to reimagine what we could do for the future. I have a new book that's coming out in May called Everyday Utopia, What 2000 Years of Wild Experiments Can Teach Us About the Good Life. And in this book, I really try to show people that all throughout history, there have been different ways of organizing the family. There have been different ways of organizing our economies. There have been different ways of imagining our relationships to each other. And that th this has been going on for like two and a half thousand years since the time of Pythagoras when he had his little communist com commune in Croton, yeah? So, so we have so much history to go by, but are we ever taught about utopian societies? No, we learn 1984, we learn Brave New World, we le learn about Lois Lowry's um, The Giver. We get all of these constant dystopias that are constantly being fed to us to convince us that we can't dream and that dreaming won't change the world. Or if we do dream and try to change the world, that will just make the world a lot worse. And I just fundamentally do not believe that's true. We have to work together and economics as a discipline, in my opinion, is like a fiat currency, <laughs> right? Yeah. We all believe in these models because we get taught them at school. You know, this, how many people have gone through an economics major and they believe that the, the economy and the system works in this particular way. But you take one look at the anthropological work on markets, right? People's work like David Graeber, great, um, so many great uh, anthropologists and, 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 you know, sort of alternative sociologists and historians who have been working on economies, economic historians in particular, other ways of organizing an economy. And you understand there are completely different models out there available to all of us. But we get locked into, it's just so easy to believe in this $20 bill because everybody else believes in the $20 bill. And as long as I can go to the store and buy myself a really good bottle of wine, that's all that matters. Yeah, it confirms right? the $20 I, bill, yeah. It confirms every day. I confirm the $20 bill in my, in my head and in my life. But that doesn't mean that it's real. It's just a piece of paper. Just like economics isn't real, it's just a way of seeing the world. And we've all begun We've all been taught, we've all been convinced to see the world in this particular way. And I am one of those people, right, who truly believe that if you can convince a bunch of people to see the world in a different way, that the world changes. And it, we have so many historical examples of when that happens. And that's, that's what this new book that's coming out is all about. Is, is, is using our imaginations, using our cognitive capacities for hope. I spend a lot of time talking about that in the book to actually change the world. Because I do think, right, that, that we are at a moment in the 21st century with the climate crises and extreme inequality and now all these AI chatbots and algorithms and automation. There's so many crazy things coming down at us, right, which are going to create serious problems for the way that we have organized our economies and our polities. I mean, the pandemic showed that pretty darn well.
So we need to be creative. And at the end of the day, and this comes back to the book that we were talking about today, I think that so much of the baggage that we have about utopia and specifically about socialism comes down to all the horror stories that we've been told about Eastern Europe. And one of the first things that we need to do is to really say, you know, a lot of those horror stories are just exactly horror stories, right? It's a much more complicated, much more complicated field. If you look at the differences of experiences of state socialism in a country like Hungary versus Yugoslavia, the Soviet Union versus the GDR versus Poland or Romania, they were all different, not to mention Cuba or Vietnam or Angola or Tanzania, right? Or Yemen. There were all these different countries that experimented with socialism in different ways. We have to really open our minds. And I think that part of what I hope to achieve with the book that we were talking about today and then with my next book is to try to get people to just think imaginatively, to, to realize it's just a piece of paper that we believe in. And things off. I Even just watching you like explain that is builds so much hope for the future, especially as a young person. It's difficult to... Um... It's difficult to find that in the curriculum. So thank you so much for that. I really appreciate it. And I really look forward to your next book. I do think because you just, what you said about young people, right? And not finding it in the curriculum. Um, I, I, I find that so sad as a professor. I find that so disturbing that these institutions of higher learning, right? Which are supposed to be places for us to experiment and think outside the box and dream and, you know, imagine what a different world could look like and also study what different worlds have looked like in the past have become these sort of almost kind of meat grinder institutions of just kind of turning out the same sorts of ideology over and over and over again. Um, and so for young people who are looking for alternatives, it's so important to read and to engage and to listen to podcasts, you know, alternative things that are out there. I really do think, I mean, I'm a big, I'm a very big advocate of what, what I call autodidact, I mean, what is called autodidacticism or self-education, this idea that we all have a responsibility to open our minds as well as allow our minds to be opened by others, right? It's a, that's a dialectic, that's a back and forth between people. And I feel that too many young people, you know, um, the TikTok algorithm doesn't really give you radical hope. It doesn't. Instagram Reels is pretty bad at that too, right? Um, it, it, and it's like, and there's a reason why, you know, it's it's because they they want young people to be disheartened. They want people to be dejected. They want people not to fight the system, not to imagine a difference a different way of, you know, the old socialist slogan, right? A, a different, another world is possible. There is another world that's possible, but if you consume a kind of steady diet of capitalism's commercial products, of course, you're going to not be exposed to those new and different ways of thinking. So I do hope that, you know, for your younger listeners out there, that they will be inspired to find new you know, sources of information that can kind of break open some of the stereotypes. And I think that we are, uh, we have a responsibility, all of us, as educators, as students, as citizens, as human beings, right, um, to try to, to challenge, right, these, these pre-packaged processed nuggets of information that are constantly being fed to us by 
the kind of usual mainstream sources. Thank you so much. And yeah, I think those are great words to end on. So I will uh, say thank you to our listeners for tuning in and listening to Professor Godsey and encourage you to check out her book, Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism, and her next book, which is coming out in May.